Dear Father, we thank you for your word, for your works, for your providence, for your love that is with us always, which endures forever. We pray that you would instruct and teach us this day unto our edification and unto your glory. We pray that you would instruct us, for we are your children, and we have much to learn and much to be reminded of. We pray that you would work this through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to turn with me uh, in the hymnal to our place in the Westminster Confession, that would be page 851 in the Trinity Hymnal. Um, Or if you're using another version of the Another copy of the Confessions, that would be chapter 5 of Providence. Today we'll look at the doctrine of God's providence. And uh, this is a topic which is very useful, very practical in many ways. Uh, John Calvin said, Give heed, and you will at once perceive that ignorance of providence is the greatest of all miseries, and the knowledge of it the highest happiest. Hap- sorry, highest happiness. It's the highest happiness to have knowledge of God's providence, but the greatest of all miseries to be ignorant of it. Because without knowledge of God's providence, all things uh, seem to be at a chance. There, you know, what purpose is there? What design is there in these events? Uh, we are quite small in the grand scheme of things, and we can feel like we're just being batted around by all these forces that are more powerful than us. There are many dangers and threats that we are prone to, but once we know that God's providence is uh, working all things according to the counsel of His will. Uh, that great, gives us great assurance and uh, great happiness, uh, great grounds for a contentment uh, or strength and endurance amid difficulty uh, that we know that God is in control. And that we have a being who is far wiser than us and surpassing our knowledge uh, that is behind these events. Often we cannot understand what's going on, what purposes there might be behind certain events, Uh, But we know that we are not as understanding or as wise as God is, who is in control of all things. Let me go ahead and read the first paragraph of this chapter, which uh, just kind of basically states the doctrine. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Notice it talks about God as the creator, the the two great works by which God executes his eternal decree is In creation, first, which he did in the space of six days, that was a unique time where he brought things into existence and set up the order of of creation. Um, And then he rested. But he continued to be active. He continued to carry out now his work of providence by which he sustains things, 
so that it does not uh, fall apart, that, that we have life and breath and everything, and he also uh, directs it and governs um, all creatures, uh, all actions, all things, and he does to the praise of his glory, displaying all of his uh, attributes, like wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy, in the way he uh, directs and disposes and upholds uh, all things. Um, Psalm 104 talks about how God provides for and sustains his creation. Uh, it's a psalm that is in part about creation, but it's just as much about God's providence and how he continues to maintain uh, his order. <clears throat> for example, it says in verse 10, You make springs gush forth in the valley. They flow between the hills. Or later on in verse 14, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Or later on in 19, He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. Notice that these things are natural things that God has set in order. He has created, but he continues to be active so that the rain that falls uh, comes from God. The grass that grows, he makes it to grow. He didn't just like a watchmaker set it all into motion and then kind of leave it to go as it on its own. Uh, but even though he uses means uh, and, and patterns and causes that he is the one that sends the food to us. He is the one who gives us our daily bread. He's the one who makes the sun to shine every day. It is to his uh, goodness. Verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom. You have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So God continues to be active in his order in all things, both humans and creatures, animals. Uh, we all look to God for our food, for our daily bread, for our life, and our lives are in his hands. Uh, Job, for example, was told much of this as well. So while the natural order works according to God's design, it doesn't work merely automatically or mechanically. It also, you know, God makes the sun to shine, the rain to fall, the plants to grow. Uh, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, as Hebrews 1 says. And he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. In him we live and move and have our being, as Paul told the Athenians. Not only does he uphold it, he, he governs and he directs it. As we've said several times, that verse in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, there is his eternal decree, his purposes, but then he implements them and he works all things uh, according to that purpose. And this providence encompasses all things that happen. In, a, in Isaiah uh, 45, Isaiah, or God through Isaiah, was speaking of how God is sovereign over all the events. He raises up King Cyrus, and he declares his name uh, you know, years and years 
before he ever existed, and that though Cyrus wasn't aware of it, you know, God would raise him up for, uh, to, for the good of his people, you know, that God is in control of all the nations and their events. And in that context, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The things that are, you know, good and delightful, the, as well as the tragedies and, and difficult things. He is the Lord, and he does all these things. So there is divine purpose and design in all that happens. God is working these things out. Now, in the second paragraph, uh, we dig into the fact that there is God, the first cause, but he also uses uh, second causes uh, in his providence. Let me go ahead and read that. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So there are kind of two levels here of of causation. On on the the one level, God, who is the first cause, decrees all things, and in relation to that decree, all things come out, uh, fall out immutably and infallibly. In other words, there's no chance that it's going to happen some other way than what God has decreed. Um, It will fall out. Nothing is uncertain to God, and it's not like he's going to change his plan. Uh, This has been decreed from eternity. So it all is going to be carried out and worked out according to the purpose of his will. But uh, by the same providence, he uses second causes. Uh, he, He uses things to cause other things and orders things to fall out according to the nature of those second causes. Now, so not all second causes are the same. Um, some things are, we might call mechanical, you know, like this thing fell on your toe and it hurts. You know, like, it's not like the rock decided to do that. It, you know, it just kind of necessarily caused that. Um, or you as like a free agent might decide, well, I could do this or I could do that. I'm going to do this. That, w- that would be a free choice, uh, or a, uh, it would be carried out freely, uh, or contingently. There's some things that, um, at least as far as our knowledge, seem to be by random, you know, without intention. Now, some biblical examples would be, you know, necessarily, God says that, um, you know, the, the order of, of days and, and nature is going to continue, um, but he also, in Jeremiah 31, talks about the ordinances of the heavens, that he uh, maintains the days by bringing up the sun and putting the moon in its orbit and having these patterns worked out um, as necessarily, the laws of nature. But there's also uh, things that fall out freely. So Isaiah 10, which we might get to in a little bit, in more detail, uh, the king of Assyria decides to destroy or to conquer Israel, and uh, he's not intending to carry out God's plan. You know, he does it because he wants to do it, and, and so it happens it, it, because he decided to do so. But that is part of God's providence. Turns out he is an instrument in God's hands that God is using to judge his people at the same time. And things can happen contingently. So, uh, Micaiah said that 
if King Ahab went out to fight, that he would get killed. And from the respect of God's decree, that was certain. Uh, but when he went out into battle, there was an enemy soldier who just drew his bow at random, and it flew through the air and happened to hit the king. Um, that that uh, was, was a rather uncertain thing with respect to you know, humans, but was a way that God carried out his infallible and immutable plan. So this is related to the next paragraph on, on means. Very short, just a sentence. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So God ordinarily works through means. And that means that you and I should use means. Uh, we should expect God to work that way. If you want to grow crops, you should probably plant some seeds, right? That's typically how God brings about crops. Um, and so you should plant them because that's going to lead to a, a plant, which is going to have crops. Or if you want to survive a shipwreck, even if God already told you that you're going to survive the shipwreck, like in the case of Paul and the Roman soldiers on their way to Rome, they knew that they would survive, but they also needed to grab hold of the planks when the ship fell apart as a, a means for their uh, survival. Ordinarily, God works through means. But God is also free to work without means. Um, he can, uh, can, can do things without using intermediary um, I put down Deuteronomy 9.9. 9. Let me see what I was thinking of there. Oh, yes. So, Moses says, When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. All right, so normally you need to eat bread and water, you know, to be sustained. Uh, but God can also sustain people without those means, as he did for Moses and in other occasions. He can work without means. He can also work above means. For example, when he gave Abraham and Sarah a, a child, um, they were past the age of, of giving birth, uh, but it was, uh, so it was above the natural powers, and yet it was not quite the same as the the, the virgin birth, you know, which was, you know, a, a miracle in, in a different way, but worked above the means so that Adam, uh, so that Abraham and Sarah uh, would have a child uh, in a still miraculous way, but still through uh, natural process, but above their normal ability. And then he can also work against means. For example, in 2 Kings 6.6, 6, where the axe head falls into the water and is lost. And Elisha is able to throw a stick into the water and the iron floats. Does iron typically float? <laughs> no, that would... In ship form it does. <laughs> it, 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 unless it's somehow an iron ship that they make it do it. But typically an iron axe head is going to sink. So the opposite is for it to float. You know, he can work against means, against the, 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 the laws of gravity or, you know, the, the typical way things work at his pleasure. So ordinary providence is a matter of God's goodness and wisdom. It's not, though, a matter of necessity. It's not like he has to work according to his ordinary providence 
as um, an expression of his, um, like that that's the only way he can do things. God can work miracles. Uh, but for our sake, he typically works in regular ways so that we can work in a way that's you know, profitable and, and anticipate things in the future. Any questions so far on these first three paragraphs? All right, well, let's dig into number four then. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So this is kind of answering you know, a question that still might be in someone's mind, like, well, what about sins? Does, does God work those things out according to the counsel of his will? Is, is that included within his providence? And uh, it says here that, yes, that his providence extends even uh, to the sins of angels and men, even to the first fall, uh, where Adam and Eve uh, fell into sin, or not really fell into sin, they committed sin and fell into sin and death, that this was also part of God's plan, and not by a bare permission, it was by uh, a permission, but not a bare permission, with that permission was a wise and powerful bounding, and he's ordering and governing those actions to his holy ends. So yes, that's part of his decree. Uh, He does um, uh, direct those events unto his own purposes and ends, which he is uh, to accomplish, but the sinfulness of those deeds only proceed from the creature. God nevertheless remains uh, completely opposed to sin. He cannot approve sin. He doesn't tempt people to sin. Uh, he is not the author of sin. You know, again, tr- balancing, or not balancing, but affirming both truths, you know, that Scripture um, affirms that God is sovereign over even the sinful deeds of men and working those things out, which is good because it's good for us because that means that um, everything works together for good. Uh, that it's not like these things are outside of God's plan and he has to work around them or could be foiled by them, uh, but that even God's enemies, as they try to rebel against him, cannot help but serve his purposes. Now, there are a number of examples of this in Scripture. Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery, that was a sinful act, uh, unnatural act, selling their own brother into slavery. But they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God sent Joseph down to Egypt, um, even though it looked like the brothers were sending him down to Egypt in different respects. Uh, God was working through those deeds but for a very different purpose than what the brothers were intending uh, by it. But the brothers remained accountable for their sinful actions, whereas uh, God uh, did not sin. Uh, The sinfulness of those actions did not proceed from him. Another example is in Assyria and Babylon. 
uh, they were not trying to obey God when they uh, conquered Israel and Jerusalem. In fact, their deeds were sinful. In fact, God would judge them for the way they treated his people. But at the same time, they were being used as instruments of God to judge his people and to serve his most holy ends. In Isaiah 10, I'll start in verse 5, it's speaking to Assyria. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to to Jerusalem and her idols, as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart to the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest in the wealth of peoples. As one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. He goes on, but he's saying that Assyria is a a rod that God is using to execute his fury upon his people. But Assyria is not thinking that that's what he's doing. Assyria just wants to gobble up all of the other nations and is proud in his might and power that he's accomplishing these things. And so God will judge Assyria for its pride and for its, uh, its sin. Uh, even though God is working through Assyria for his purposes. Habakkuk speaks the same way of um, regarding Babylon. And so God's enemies cannot avoid serving God's purposes, uh, which is one reason that we should all seek to be reconciled to God, uh, that we might uh, serve him in a way that is pleasing to him. Any questions on this point, on God's providence and sin? There's just obviously a degree of mystery here when you get down to the nitty-gritty of how, how does that work, uh, but it is something that is revealed in Scripture, and it would be bad if it was any other way, uh, too. Oh, so God's not sovereign over all things, or, oh, so God is responsible for sin. You know, those would not be great either. Um, but we have here in a unsearchable wisdom and almighty power of God that he is able to use the sinful deeds of man, uh, permitting them, ordering them, governing them uh, to his most holy ends, his purposes. Well, the next two paragraphs have to do with um, 
what we might, might call blinding or hardening, although it's uh, differently expressed. First, it talks about how God might deliver uh, his own people to a degree of their own corruption to expose their weakness, and then uh, more dramatically, for the wicked and ungodly whom God doth blind and harden. How does that happen? How does that work? Um, let me read paragraph 5. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. So at times, God leaves his own children for a time uh, to various temptations and to the corruption of their own hearts. He may do this to chastise them for their former sins. So sins they've already committed, to chastise them for that, to to say, well, well, maybe you should run with that. See see how that sin works out for you. And uh, And to correct them for that. As when God was, was angered at Israel, and he moved uh, uh, David to sinfully commit a census, not that God tempted him to, to do so. We find out elsewhere in Scripture that Satan himself is the one who tempted him, uh, but that God worked through those things so that more judgment was brought upon Israel, and they were humbled, and they sought God's mercy. Um, or maybe it's not to chastise them for their former sins, Maybe it's simply to reveal unto them the remaining corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts so that they might be humbled, as God humbled uh, Hezekiah in Second Chronicles 32, where you realize, that's right, there's all of this uh, potential for sin that's within me. It's only the grace of God that uh, I am not like uh, the rest of the world, that there is uh, sin. I am dependent upon his grace. I cannot stand upon my own works. I need to humble myself before God. God can, uh, let me read this in Second Chronicles to get the right phrase, but um, to show what is in our hearts. Second Chronicles thirty-two, thirty-one. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to Hezekiah to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. So God seemingly, you know, obviously was still with Hezekiah as a a believer, uh, but had drawn back to leave him to himself to some degree. Uh, that he might reveal the, the sinfulness that was yet remaining within him so that he was humbled. In weakness, we learn to depend upon the Lord, uh, to be watchful against sin. Consider how Peter uh, fell, and that was for the humbling of Peter, how he was restored and how he was taught to indeed watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Um, God also has other just and holy ends that he might have in mind with the trials of his saints. We shouldn't be too dogmatic about like, well, this obviously was the choice, you know, the reason for this particular trial that he sent upon you. He has probably a variety of 
holy and just ends that he may have in mind in the trial of his saints, but for their good. And it is for a time. Uh, He does not cast off his saints. But in uh, paragraph 6, we have something a little different. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as righteous judge, for former sins doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had, and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasions of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, even under those means which God uses, useth for the softening of others. All right, so there are sinners whom God judges by blinding and hardening them, and that he does that by withholding the grace by which they could be saved, Um, by passing over them, passing by them, but also even by removing the gifts that they already had, Uh, the the restraints, perhaps, that were on their sin uh, to begin with. And he also uh, gives them over to their lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, um, so that they are even hardened under the same means that, for believers, soften them. You know, the Word of God can come to people and by his grace soften the hearts of sinners and bring them to repentance and a knowledge of salvation. But for other people, the same word can be used to harden and to aggravate and to provoke hostility and and, and greater hatred. We find this Jesus and the people that he taught. Uh, Some people wanted to kill him. Other people wanted to follow him. It was the same message. Uh, But God was, was revealing to some, passing by others, for their own sins. The uh, obvious ex- example of this is, is Pharaoh, that when Moses proclaimed uh, God's word, it uh, hardened Pharaoh, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, it was the same, same process, God working through uh, Pharaoh, withdrawing his gifts from him, handing him over to his own lust so that he was actually provoked to further hostility and enmity by the word of the Lord that was spoken to him so that God would display his power in such a great and utter triumph over Pharaoh and all the might that he could muster against the Lord. And so as Augustine, I think, would say, the same sun that melts the wax uh, hardens the clay. The last paragraph, though, is a comforting one. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. The special end of God's providence is the care of his church. He disposes all things for their good. As Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The church is at the center of history. His, uh, His people, those who believe in him, are the apple of his eye. He directs all things for their good. If he cares for the grass, the field, and the birds, the air, how much more will he care for his children? As 
Jesus' argument in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he has a special providence, a special care for those who are his children. And he will not let the gates of hell prevail against his church. Sometimes his purposes and design is hidden to us, and we have to recognize the limits of our understanding of his providence. Sometimes we can see it better in uh, after the fact and looking back at it. Other things we won't understand until, um, until glory, uh, if then. But we will know that God indeed is good and wise and has great things in store for his children and is currently refining us, bringing us uh, away from sin and bringing us unto holiness and glory. And so, if he cares so much for the grass of the field, which is alive for a day and then dies, how much more will he feed and clothe you, and how much more will he care for you forever? So, I know we're kind of running over time. Four quick points of application. It's be sure to have this God of providence on your side. If, he, if all things are being worked by him, he is the person to be in good terms with, to, to be reconciled to. There's no escape from him. Was Jonah able to escape from God? No, no, because he controls the wind and the waves and the sailors and everything. He's the guy that you need to, to uh, seek mercy from and to uh, take refuge in. The second point is, for those who are God's children, this doctrine is of great comfort, leading to a hopeful prayer, patience, endurance, now that we know he is looking out for our good. Third, we should praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Uh, Even though, you know, some blessings might come from other people, or from the sun, or from the earth, all of them still also come from God, and to him we ought to give thanks, even though we do not deserve them. And then fourth, meditate upon God and get to know him better through his works of providence. You know, examine his works, study them, um, and behold his, his generosity, his wisdom, his justice, his power, as the psalmist in 104 does, as he just meditates upon God's works and how wise and good uh, he is. I'll just conclude in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. What advantage is it to know that God has created and by his providence does still uphold all things, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing can separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your power, which you work on our behalf. We pray that you would indeed work it for the good of your church, for the increase of your people, for the salvation of the lost, for the perfecting and caring for of your saints, that you would advance your glory in the earth and to the praise of your great name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.